again, welcome. It's good to have all of you here today. And so, you know, we're on this whole series. We keep on talking about spiritual formation. We keep on talking about how do we put Jesus first in our life. And we specifically been talking about our identity and calling, understanding our identity and calling and in moving forward into that. And if I said, what is the theme of this today's message going to be? And I would say it's the theme of when Paul talked to his young Timothy in First and Second Timothy and said, Timothy, I want you to be confident of your calling. See, it's one thing to understand your calling. It's one thing to understand your identity, but that's a whole other thing to actually have confidence in it, to actually walk in the fullness of that, what God has for you. But before I talk about spiritual formation and identity and confidence, I want to talk to you a little bit about my wife. i tell you a little tidbit about my wife. Some of you probably know this about my wife if you've hung around her with more than a couple hours, and that is my wife loves the Lord of the Rings. She loves the book. She loves the movie. She can probably, she probably can quote a big chunk of that 12-hour movie. That is one of her, that's one of her, uh, one of her favorite literary pieces. It's one of her favorite movies. And we used to watch that at least once annually together, but Becky kind of breaks out and watches her own segments. It's a very inspirational movie for her, and it gives her lots and lots of therapy. And so if you do talk to her and she's like, I'm having a really bad day and I'm watching Lord of the Rings, you know that she's getting uh, very encouraged by that movie. And, and I too, I, I do love the Lord of the Rings. I love the movie. Becky's watched it with me several times to help me get through it, but the author of the book, J.R.R. Tolkien, he is quite the incredible man, and he is an incredible storyteller, and it's, it's just amazing how he can tell a story that's equal parts fantasy and equal parts myth, and he can weave the gospel presentation throughout the story. It's just a, quite an amazing skill he has. Now, on top of it, you know this man is an incredible author when he can come up with a new word and the word is added into the English dictionary. Not everybody can create it in their own word and somebody picks it up and puts it in the dictionary. And the word that he created is the word eucatastrophe. It is catastrophe with the prefix eu. Eu is the Greek word for good. So you put eucatastrophe, eu is pronounced eu in the Greek, and it means a good catastrophe. That was a literary device that Tolkien would use consistently throughout his work. And he went so far to say that if you, the essence of a good story is a really good you catastrophe, that you have to have a catastrophe that suddenly is made good, and so you see a transference in the movie that you never expected to see. Now, this is a key to understanding a good you catastrophe by Tolkien. The turnaround in the movie is not because it's some heroic effort but it's often an outside grace that comes into the situation and turns everything around. So for you Lord of the Rings fan, you're sitting here, you're thinking, ah, I know what he's talking about. I can see some you catastrophes all throughout his work. Now I'm not going to give them away because my wife has already said what she would love to do sometime is to have a book study, Bible study, where you would just watch that movie and discuss it together. So I'm not going to give it away. But if you're, if you're a, a Tolkien fan and you're sitting here going, I can't think of any, think about the eagles. Think about the trees. All through the movie, those are the outside agents that would come in and minister grace. And so that's a beautiful picture that uh, Tolkien helps us to see, is that you need a good story is built by a eucatastrophe. Something seems incredibly hopeless until the gift of grace enters into a situation. 
And you see eucatastrophes not just in Tolkien's work, but they're all through Scripture. You think of one of the biggest eucatastrophes in the Bible is the death of Jesus. Many of Jesus' disciples thought on that Friday afternoon that was a catastrophe, that this did not work out. They thought all the promises that Jesus had, gone. They thought, how could this guy who claims to be the Son of God actually die and be buried? But three days later, you see what looked as a catastrophe, the resurrection made it a eucatastrophe, where they brought good out of what appeared to be a catastrophe for so many people. And I think if we stopped today and we went around the room and we talked about catastrophes, that many of you would have your own eucatastrophe in your life. That many of you could tell stories about suddenly something was going not so good in your life until God came into the situation and added the prefix EU into your situation. Our salvation experience is a eucatastrophe where God brought something that could have potentially been dangerous and gave you the gift of salvation. And all through our life, we see God doing that. I think Romans, the first five verses of Romans, give us a very good understanding of a literary work called a eucatastrophe. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly hopeless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. The key in that phrase is at just the right time. But I think sometimes a eucatastrophe is built by the question, where are you? Where are you right now? Where are you right now in your relationship with God? Where are you right now in your relationships? Some of you may recall that's the very first question asked in the Bible. It's a very simple question, where are you? And you might remember the story that after Adam and Eve sinned, here they are in the garden. The first catastrophe just happened. They had committed sin. And God walks into the garden and he says, where are you? I don't think anybody expected that narrative. I think we expected that maybe God would come into the garden a little upset with Adam and Eve. He'd come in there to scold them, or maybe he'd come in to take things away from them. Instead, God walks into the garden with confidence and compassion and simply says, where are you? And that first catastrophe is going to turn into a good catastrophe because of the grace God brings into the situation, and Jesus ultimately comes in to rescue us. What happened in the Garden of Eden was a catastrophe. Nobody expected that that would happen, and I don't think anybody expected the resolution to come quickly. But I think Genesis is a good chapter for us to begin to look at when you're talking about identity and calling. Because in the first chapter, you see this powerful, creative God, and by the third chapter, you realize that not only is God powerful and creative, but he is also going to take the role of the sustainer and the caregiver for all people. God comes into the garden and he does for Adam and Eve what they cannot do on their own. 
See, the beautiful part of the story of God coming in is that Adam and Eve were not looking for God to rescue them. They were actually hiding from God. They weren't crying out to God and saying, God, we got in this tough situation. Would you come in this situation? No, they were doing the exact opposite. They were hiding from God. And that's why God comes into the situation. He says, where are you? It's interesting because it's the exact same thing that Jesus did after his death. When on the day of his resurrection, all the disciples were hiding in a house, worried what was going to happen to them, and Jesus walks into the house. He finds people that are lost. He finds people that are hiding. That's a beautiful part of the story of the gospel is that Jesus is always looking for people that are hiding. He's looking for people that are not looking for him. It's the point of the gospel message that God always is looking after you and doing for you what you can't do yourself. So how did Adam and Eve get in so much trouble anyway? They got in so much trouble because they believed the lie of the enemy when he said to them, did God really say you can't eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden? In other words, what the enemy said to Adam and Eve is this. He said, can you really trust that God's going to take care of you? Can you really trust that God is going to look out for you, that God's going to provide your needs? Because the enemy set it up to Adam and Eve that God was withholding from them. If you can't eat from that tree, then certainly God is not providing everything that you need. And I think the same question is that what we all face today. Do we really trust that God is going to meet every single one of our needs? Do we really trust that God is going to put our best first? Or do we think, like the enemy said, that God's holding out on you? So you might say, what does this have to do with identity and calling? Why are we talking about Adam and Eve? Why are we talking about how they sinned? It has a lot to do with identity because a lot of your identity is based on what do you believe. And a lot of times our belief system is severely fractured because we have our good and godly and holy beliefs over here and then we have a lot of the lies that the enemy said over to, uh, to us that we believe as well. Sometimes our belief system is a mixture of good things and this mixture of bad things. A friend of mine last week, Chuck Pierce, he gave a beautiful illustration. He said our beliefs are often like Velcro. They stick to us. And sometimes we have to go through the process of removing beliefs that are not true and that are not right and they're not honest and they're not sincere. To understand your full calling, your full identity, you have to often go through these processes where you come to understand what really is the truth about you and get rid of the lies. Last week we talked a lot about Moses and how Moses had a lot of doubt that he had to be delivered from to do what God's called him to do. And I want to go back to Moses today. I want to go back to him, and I want to talk about the question that God asked to Mo, for one of the questions that God asked Moses. So I'm going to set it up and kind of remind you, some of you are new here this week, that in the second book of the Bible, we find that God's chosen people, the Israelites, they found themselves in a really hard circumstance. Here they experienced tremendous freedom, tremendous blessings, and by Exodus 1 verse 11, it says, So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Python and Ramesses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix motor, motor and bricks and to do all the work in the field. They were ruthless in all their demands. 
Here's the illustration of the nation of Israel. Here, one day, things are going well. They're experiencing the blessings of God. They're living in Egypt. They have the king is blessing them and take care, taking care of them. And it almost seems like overnight, suddenly the king says, I'm going to show great hostility to the Israelites. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't do anything bad to deserve it. But they became a threat to the king of Egypt because they were growing. And suddenly, one minute, they're experiencing everything blessing. And the next minute, they're in captivity. And they're crying out to God. And they're asking God to rescue them. And they had to wait a long time. There's over a 400-year history of the Israelites crying out to God. There were some people who lived in captivity their entire life and never got to experience the freedom of being rescued out of Egypt. So you can imagine, there's a lot of very discouraged Israelites. There's a lot of people who are pretty frustrated with God, saying, God, are you ever going to answer our prayers? Because we've been praying lifetimes, generations we have crying out to you, would you save us from captivity? And you're still in captivity. You're still doing all the hard work. And then here we pick up in Exodus 2, verse 23. It says, Years passed, and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under the burdens of slavery. They cried out to help, and their cries rose to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. That's a good verse. That's a good verse that no, it, that God is saying to the Israelites, I heard every single one of your prayers. I listened to every one of them. God had to listen to the prayers. And he has to respond because he is the covenant-making God. And right here in the verse, it says God remembered his covenant promise. See, covenant is a very important word from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And it's a constant reminder to us that God is always faithful to his people, even when we're not faithful. Even though it appeared that God wasn't being faithful because the Israelites were still in captivity, God was still being faithful behind the scenes, and he was listening to every prayer. There's confidence in that verse that no matter what situation you're in, God is listening to your prayer, and that God is always acting on behalf of what's best for you and for the people around you. And when it became time to act, God raised up a man named Moses. And I think Moses is the guy that nobody would expect to be raised up to lead the Israelites out of captivity. Not only is he an older man, but he's a shepherd. He has no power. He has no influence. There's nothing influential about Moses. There's nothing that he has superpower that he can go to back to Egypt and say anything with authority to the king. In fact, it would be even strange to even think he could get in a meeting with the king of Egypt. Why would he listen to the shepherd but yet God calls him to do that. And it's an interesting calling because Moses here is minding his own business in the middle of the desert when, as we talked about last week, when he saw the bush burning. And God cried out to him in Exodus 3 and said, Look, the cries of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. God calls somebody that nobody expected. Moses really isn't that qualified. As we talked about last week, we saw every excuse that Moses came up with. He did have all those problems. He was not a good communicator. He was not going to be able to uh, walk with power and authority, but yet God called him. And Moses gives God five very good excuses to try to get out of it. And on top of that, Moses is actually on the most wanted list in Egypt. 
Some of you might remember the story that when Moses lived in Egypt, there was a fight broke out between an Egyptian and an Israelite, and Moses stepped in to try to resolve it, and in the process, an Egyptian got killed. And the king of Egypt said, I am going to kill Moses for what he did. So actually, when Moses, where Moses was living for the last 40 years was in Midian, he was running away from Egypt. He's hiding. And now God is calling him out of hiding to go back to, Israel, to, go back to Egypt to not only face the emperor, but also deal with his own personal issues there. But there's a lot at stake there. Moses' personal victory would mean victory for thousands of other people. Sometimes your personal victory is going to extend way beyond you. It'll extend to your family. It will extend to your friends, to your family, and your community. If Moses did not respond to the call of God on his life, God probably would have raised up somebody else, but you think of the significance that would have been lost if Moses didn't do what God had called him to do. And I think Moses is a good prototype of who God is looking for. Somebody who really isn't that qualified. Somebody who appears that they really don't have the capacity to do what God's called them to do. Moses is a good example of a person that really you should have overlooked the guy because after all, he is hiding. He's worried about his future. But yet that's who God calls. God has a tendency to call people who are not look like they're the valuable ones to be called because he wants to work through them. What Moses had going for him was obedience. What Moses had going for him is that when the bush was burning, he stopped and he listened to God. There's an old Jewish rabbi myth that they say many, many people walked by the burning bush and ignored it. But Moses was the one who stopped and looked at it actually what God's looking for. Are you going to stop and respond to him when he's calling your name from a bush? But there's something deeper than when Moses gave his five protests to God about the five reasons he wouldn't go. What God is doing in those five protests is that he's developing in Moses a confidence of his calling and his identity. As I said in my introduction in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says to young Timothy, he says, I want you to have confidence in your calling. Timothy, you know what you're supposed to do. You've heard me talk about it. You can write about it. You can teach about it. But it's one thing to know your calling, and it's another thing to actually have confidence in it. So through that dialogue, that five-question and debate that Moses goes through with, uh, with, Mo with God and Moses go through, there's really two questions that are at stake. Number one, Moses is saying, who am I and who is God? See, quite often when we want to figure out our identity and our calling, we have to answer those questions. Who is God and who am I? And the first thing that Moses does is he starts telling everything that's wrong with him. It's almost a confessional what Moses is doing through those five rejections of his calling. Saying, I'm not good at this. I'm not qualified to do that which is actually a healing process for Moses, getting it out on the table and saying, look, I, I can't do this. I don't have the capacity to do it. But it is through the process of Moses identifying what are all of his weaknesses that he begins to understand who God is. That God is the one who can make up for every weakness that he has. That God is the one who can help Moses to overcome any weakness that he has. But it's through understanding your weaknesses and how God can help you overcome, Moses actually develops the strength and confidence to do what God's called him to do. But what's the real turnaround for Moses? 
is when Moses is going back and forth to God saying why he's not qualified is in Exodus 4 verse 2 when the Lord looked at Moses and said, what is in your hand? And Moses replied, it's a shepherd's staff. Now you have to wonder, what is Moses thinking right now? Moses just said to God, I am not qualified because nobody will believe me. And God's response to Moses is, what's in your hand? Moses is basically, I got a stick. I got a piece of wood. I picked it up at some point on the trail and I kind of sanded it down. I have a little, shaped it on top, but it's basically a stick. And God, you want to talk about this stick. It seems a little bit irrelevant at the time. But God is going to show Moses something significant about that stick. See, to Moses, it was just a staff, it was just a stick. But for God, it's going to become an instrument that's going to perform miracles. This common stick, as Exodus 4 says, will become the staff of God. It will become a symbol of power and authority that Moses would use to part the sea. He would use it to stand before Pharaoh to talk about the ten plagues. And he would use it to get water out of a rock. But basically, there is nothing fancy about that stick. There's nothing special about that stick. There's nothing powerful about that stick except the lesson that Moses is going to learn. That the ordinary becomes powerful when God blesses it. That something as simple as a stick can become powerful when God blesses it. Before God called Moses, God knew exactly what Moses would need. And I think a lot of us, we have faced uncertainty. A lot of people are still experiencing uncertainty. A lot of churches are experiencing uncertainty. A lot of people are just trying to get their feet back from COVID. And a lot of people are discouraged. A lot of people are still frustrated. A lot of people are wondering, do I have the capacity to make it? Do I have the ability? And I think what God says to a lot of us all consistently is, what's in your hand? What do you have? I think part of our spiritual formation is answering the question to God, what do you have? What do you have in your hands that God can bless and make it special? What do you have in your life that God can attach the prefix good to and turn it into something powerful? See, some of you might have a lot of money or possessions or influence or talents or abilities that God wants to use those. But some of you might only have some shame or some disappointment. And that's what your life feels like. The biggest commodity that you have is shame. It's disappointment. It's discouragement. It's hopelessness. In many ways, Moses' staff was a picture of disappointment. Moses was not supposed to be a shepherd boy. Moses was raised in the palace. Moses had an incredible future ahead of him to be raised in the king's palace, the best education, the finest foods. He was created to significant role in the Egyptian empire. But because of the situation with the fight between the two people and the, the king of Egypt wanting to kill Moses, he ends up hiding. He ends up hiding for 40 years and he becomes a shepherd. I'm, I'm wondering if every day when Moses went out and thought, yep, I get to be a shepherd today, my life could have been something else. So much of Moses' life was regret and disappointment. But it's actually the symbol of his regret and disappointment is what God ended up blessing. That God came down, he took the disappointment, the rejection, the disappointment he had, 
and he blessed it, and he turned it into something very, very powerful. Listen to what God said to Moses in Exodus 4, verse 3. He said, take that staff and throw it on the ground. Then the Lord told him, the Lord told, let me start again. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw the staff, and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back. Then the Lord told him, reach out and grab its tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it and turned back into his shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform this sign, the Lord told them. Then they believe that the then they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, really has appeared to you. It's a significant series that Moses goes to. And one when Moses started here, he just simply has a staff in his hand, and God says, throw it down. That was obedience on Moses' part. To throw down his staff was a significant of saying, okay, I'll lay down this career that I have. I have a job. I have this shepherd thing going for me. And it's working for me. And God says to him, I want you to lay it down. And so the next thing that God says to Moses is he says to him, okay, I want you to, I want you to, the, the staff turns into a snake. And suddenly Moses is kind of shocked and he steps back and kind of confused and worried and nervous about it. And God says to him, pick it up by its tail. That's a pretty brave thing that Moses actually picks up the snake by its tail because from what I'm told, the most dangerous place to pick up a snail is by its tail. The snake bites its tail. Think it had turned around and picked him up. But Moses did exactly what God told him to do, which is a kind of a dangerous thing, but God protected him. And he gave him the courage to believe that he would be with him. You see throughout this illustration that while Moses is being obedient to God, that he's actually developing a new boldness. When Moses was willing to lay down what had, been com what had become very comfortable for him. If you look at Moses' life, you can tell it was just years of preparation. That his 40 years of the wilderness were not 40 years wasted. Instead, it was 40 years of preparation where God would take something ordinary in his life and bless it so that he could become a leader to lead people out of a tough situation. I think when we look at the story of Moses, it's good to remember the excuses that we come up with. What do we say to God? Our reason that we can't serve, or our reason that we can't do what he's telling us to do. What are the ordinary things in our life that sometimes we fail to submit to God to see him turn into something that would bless us? See, a big part of discipleship, a big part of understanding who we are and who God is, is taking time in our discipleship to Christ, to ask, answer the questions, where are we? Who are we? And who is God? And what is he asking us to lay down? I think part of our routine of spiritual formation is that we consistently ask the question, who are we and who is God? I think sometimes we think spiritual identity is something you learn and you move on instead of realizing it's a consistent process in our life. As we close today and as we talk, we trans come into our time of communion. I want to close with this verse from John 3, verse 35, which says, The Father loves His Son, and He's put everything into His hands. That's a beautiful verse by John the Baptist when he is telling the people about Jesus. That Jesus has everything in His hands. That God has given Jesus complete authority, complete power, 
And we have the confidence to know that we are in Jesus' hands as well. And whatever God has called, we are in his hands. But I think it's significant about Jesus is that when he was arrested in John 18, the scripture tells us that the first thing they did when they captured Jesus is they tied him up. Most scholars will say the first thing that they did is they tied his hands. They tied his hands because that's the way they knew where Jesus had power. They had seen Jesus perform miracles with his hands. They'd seen him lay hands on people and see them healed and restored and delivered and set free. They knew Jesus' hands were powerful. So the first thing that his captors wanted to do is stop that. And I think the enemy knows as well is that God puts powerful things in our hands. And the enemy wants to bind our hands or maybe more bind our understanding that we have powerful things that we can do in the name of Jesus. I think there's times that we need to ask God to help us to remember what he's done in the past for us so we have confidence to know that God continues to set us free as we mature in our relationship with him. One of the big words throughout the Old Testament is the word remembrance. And so when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul wasn't saying, hey, sit around your house and and just reminisce about some things that God did in the past. No, what Paul is saying is, I want you to remember what God's done in the past. I want you to remember God's faithfulness in the past. I want you to remember the times that you were hiding and that God came and found you. I want you to remember the times that you were broken and God came and found you. I want you to remember the times that you did not even pray and God came and he rescued you. I want you to remember those times because when you remember those times, it gives you confidence to know he's going to continue to do that in the future. The reason that we take communion is out of obedience, but we also take communion because it builds our faith. It helps us to remember that Jesus died on the cross and that his blood was given for us and that his body was given for us, that we remember as we look in the past what he has done for us. And it's it's powerful for us to remember as well the eucatastrophe that God wants to give to each of us. See, as Tolkien says, there's not a good story without a good eucatastrophe. And we are people that God wants to do, not just one eucatastrophe. He wants to do multiple eucatastrophes in our life. Our salvation is not the final eucatastrophe moment, but God wants to continue to do them. And so as we take communion today, my prayer for all of you and for all of you at home and for you watching later in the week is that we remember that God's faithfulness in the past will continue in the future. That as we take communion today, we remember that the same power that was there on Resurrection Sunday is the same power that's available to us today to take what's ordinary in our life to be blessed by God that it become powerful. That's why we are here today. So we develop confidence in our calling, confidence in what God has called us to do, so we don't look at our ordinary objects in our life and say, that's just an ordinary stick. But we look at things in our life. It might be shame, it might be disappointment, and we say, God can bless that. That makes a good story. There's nothing better than a good story of restoration. I'm going to go back to Romans 5. In Romans 5, it talks about we go through hardships. Hardships build endurance. Endurance develops character, and character builds hope. And it says, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. Other translations say hope does not lead to shame. 
all throughout the scriptures, disappointment and shame stand side by side. It's the message of the scripture that your life is not going to end up being shameful. That your life is not going to end up being a disappointment. Sure, you're going to experience disappointments. Sure, you'll experience some things that you don't like. But the promise of God in Romans 5 is that at the end of your life, you can look back and say, God bless me more than any difficulties I experienced. And that's the confidence we have, that God can take anything in our life, whether it's shame or whether it's skill, and he can bless it abundantly to give us peace and to give us hope and to use us like he used Moses to be a blessing to other people. So I'm going to ask you to participate in communion with me today. And if you haven't done one of these before, it's a little tricky. And if you need help, ask somebody else because it'll take me longer. But on the top, you can peel off the first layer. And you're going to find this little wafer. It's a little wafer, and it's the bread. We're going to get that out. All of you get that out. You get the little wafer, and we'll eat it together. Hopefully everybody gets it out. If you're at home, maybe found a little cracker, maybe a little goldfish you can have. Together we're going to eat this together, remembering that Jesus gave us his life. You can take it. Yep. And then we peel back the next layer, and it is the juice. That's a little trickier to get to that one. If you need a new one, let me know. <laughs> I should just get juice boxes next week. Got it, Sam? And Sam will clean these up afterwards. That's his fun thing to do. Can you get it? You need a new one? All right, I already got it. All right. So we're going to drink the, this cup reminding us of the blood of Jesus that sets us free. <clears throat> so let me close in prayer. And then during our last song, Sam will pick up the cup. So. But let me pray. Father, I do thank you that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I thank you that you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God and that you remember your promises. And Lord, I thank you that you are always faithful to your people no matter what situation that they are in. God, I thank you that you looked down on the people of Israel when they were in Egypt and you said you saw them. You saw their pain and you saw their suffering and you had compassion on them. God, I thank you for the compassion that you have on every single person in this room and those watching online. And I thank you that you are God who rescues. So God, I come before you today and I lift up all the needs in this room. It might be personal needs. Maybe it's for their family members or extended family members that are living their life and it looks like it's in the middle of a catastrophe. And we come before you, God, and we pray that you would bring in some goodness and mercy into grace into each of the catastrophes that we might be experiencing. And we come before you, Lord, knowing that you are the same God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when you rescued your people out of Egypt, that you continue to rescue your people. So we come before you today, Lord, and we just lay down the burdens that we're carrying before you. And we ask, Lord, for breakthrough today for every person here, every family that's represented here. 
God, I ask, even as we close in this last song, that you would encourage us. May we leave here today remembering times that you rescued us or delivered us that maybe we have forgotten. Lord, I pray today it would be just a day of gratitude to rise up in us when you help us to remember things that we might have forgotten. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.